Welcome to the CSIS podcast. I'm Colm Quinn, and today we're talking about Myanmar. This week, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned of a looming catastrophe and a risk of ethnic cleansing taking place in the country. In the last month, some 370,000 people have fled the latest round of violence and headed to neighbouring Bangladesh. These people are the Rohingya, a Muslim minority ethnic group with a history of persecution in the country. This crisis has led to outside pressure mounting on Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Peace Laureate elected Myanmar's civilian leader in 2016. She's been criticised for her failure to speak out against state violence and has had her reputation as an icon of democracy tarnished. The opening of Myanmar was seen as a key achievement of the Obama administration. So with this humanitarian disaster now unfolding, is this something the US was expecting? Well, no. I mean, cynically looking back, uh, maybe we should have. This is Greg Poling, a fellow in our Southeast Asia program. When Myanmar started opening, when when the former um, kind of military-appointed, quote-unquote elected civilian government of Tencent started this, this opening process in 2011, uh, it did uncork a lot of ethnic tensions in Myanmar. We started to see this bubble up in 2012 with, with communal violence uh, in, in Rakhine State that uh, the official count has killed 100 and I think 20 uh, Rohingya, but probably much, much more than that, sent uh, tens of thousands fleeing across the border to Bangladesh and tens of thousands more into these refugee camps throughout Rakhine State where they've been living uh, ever since. And in, in the state capital, Sitwe, it uh, forced them all into what's essentially a ghetto um, of Ong Mingalar in the middle of the city. They haven't been able to leave. They haven't been able to work. Uh, there's been repeated problems with getting food, aid, and the problems have only gotten worse. So, you know, this is not a new problem that it didn't appear over the last few months or even last year when when uh, we saw the rise of this new small Rohingya extremist group. Uh, it's one that's been festering, um, I mean, certainly for the last five years and, and really for decades. I think certainly from a Western standpoint, we looked at the rise of Aung San Suu Kyi and we said this is going to be different. What's going on from from a political standpoint that makes the Rohingya such a such a divisive issue? I think uh, we have a couple of, of problems here. One is uh, a narrative that has been sold by the government in Myanmar for the last 50 years, really, um, dating back to, to then-dictator Ne Win in the late 60s, who very purposely started scapegoating the Rohingya, among other ethnic minorities like the Karen, um, in an effort to legitimize his own rule, in an effort to legitimize uh, kind of Bamar, which is the majority uh, uh, ethnic group, while well, plurality ethnic group, uh, and, and Buddhist Burman identity. And that has entered the you know everyday mindset of, of most Burmese. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi is probably not among those. She didn't grow up in that environment, but for most of her, her voters and most of her officials, they grew up being told that the Rohingya are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh who are stealing uh, good Buddhist lands and threatening to spread Islam throughout the country. Uh, and then we have a problem of uh, the Rakhine or Arakanese, who are the local majority group in Rakhine State, but a minority throughout the country who themselves are disenfranchised and have, uh, you know, in large part, uh, see themselves through the lens of centuries, really, certainly generations of oppression by the Bamar, the Burman 
majority. Um, and you know, we it's it's a sad, funny, ironic part of human nature that often those groups who are most oppressed take it out by oppressing those even farther below them. So the Rakhine scapegoat their own Rohingya neighbors for their own poverty and their own displacement and their own development problems. Um, and I don't want to let the new Burmese government off the hook, but obviously the military have been uh, a big part of the current unrest and, and the killing and, and um, terrible stories you're hearing coming out. Explain to us how that power structure works in Myanmar between uh, the democratically elected government and uh, the, the military. Yeah, so first, uh, it's helpful to remember that Myanmar is uh, democratizing. It's not a democracy, at least not by, by the standards of most of the Western world. Um, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi and her National League for Democracy were elected uh, overwhelmingly uh, 18 months ago, but they do not control uh, many levers of power. The constitution, which was written by the military government with no public uh, input, controls, uh, ensures the military controls the defense ministry, they control border affairs, they have uh, wide-ranging power to step in in cases of, of states of emergency. They uh, have a quarter of parliamentary seats reserved to them um, at all levels of government, so both national and state level. Uh, which means that there are no-go zones for the civilian government. And some of them are constitutional and some of them are kind of normative. You know, Aung San Suu Kyi and other civilian leaders have to know that there are political landmines. That if they step on, they might very well invite uh, military intervention. It's, you know, a, a good parallel here is Indonesia, which everybody talks about the fall of Suharto uh, after the Asian financial crisis in 97 and, and the democratization of Indonesia. But it uh, wasn't until two presidents later that the military finally gave up their reserved seats in parliament. You know, it wasn't really until the early 2000s that Indonesia became a full democracy. Uh, it was a slow process. So knowing what we do now, obviously this this current crisis with the Rohingya is not, has not been sudden as we've discussed. This has been growing for, for, for years, if not decades. I think it begs the question, the opening of Myanmar was this big foreign policy achievement of the Obama administration. Uh, he visited the country twice. There's not many more countries you can say about uh, about that. I, I think the question is, was it too soon? We run the risk of learning the wrong lessons here. Um, no, I don't think it was too soon. Um, some would argue it was too late. Uh, you can't have leverage over a country if you're not engaged. And, you know, all of the talk now about, well, let's cut off the small amount of military assistance we have in Myanmar, we couldn't even have those discussions if we hadn't reached out uh, to Myanmar in the first place over the last five, six years. Uh, this is not a problem that the outside world can solve. When you look at the state we were in in the bilateral relationship in 2010, 2011, we had virtually no leverage over the military or over the civilian government. Myanmar did not open up, did not democratize because of two decades of U.S. sanctions. Uh, that is a nice story to tell ourselves, but the U.S., the European powers, to a degree the Japanese, we had, you know, our our censure of of the Burmese government after the coup in the uh, early '90s that that basically cut them off from the world except for China uh, and their ASEAN neighbors. This had nothing to do with why they did this. They did this because they saw themselves being left behind by the world, and they did this because, frankly, the military was tired of governing and tired of being a laughingstock. This was a country that, when World War II ended, was the breadbasket of Asia. 
uh, and was set to become the most developed nation in Southeast Asia when the British left. And yet uh, they looked around in 2010 and found themselves uh, the least developed nation in the region and uh, a pariah. So, you know, 20 years of sanctions policy didn't work. Why should we think that it would suddenly work now if we tried to reinstate them? Um, you say this is not a problem the outside world can solve. There's surely pressure the outside world can put on. Um, is that from the United States? Is that from China? Is that from a more international um, aspect if one was to try and change the behavior that's happening right now? We can assist around the margins. Um, no amount of pressure from the outside is going to change the way that most Buddhist Burmans in Myanmar feel about the Rohingya. Uh, we can try to tighten the screws on the military a bit. We can try to assist with the refugee crisis over the border in Bangladesh. We can, over the long term, try to assist with the developmental challenges in Rakhine State. I mean, as I said earlier, the Rakhine are desperately poor. It's the second poorest state in the country. Uh, as long as they themselves feel disenfranchised, they're going to continue to disenfranchise the Rohingya neighbors. Uh, but ultimately, this is going to have to be resolved by uh, the civilian government and the military in Myanmar. And we have to be realistic. Unless the international community is willing to step in in a way that we haven't countenanced, uh, you know, we're not going to do it with sanctions. We're not going to do it with finger wagging. We should certainly censure the military and Aung San Suu Kyi and try to do what we can. Um, but there's, we're not going to ride over the horizon on our white horse here. So basically, do you feel this is going to get worse then? Yeah. Um, if, if the international community wanted to make a difference, we probably should have done it five years ago uh, when the civilian government and the military cooperated in disenfranchising the entire Rohingya population, moving them out of their villages, putting them in uh, either urban ghettos or countryside refugee camps. Uh, when Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, then the opposition leader, freshly out of prison, refused at every opportunity to say a word about these people. Uh, now we have a full-blown humanitarian crisis and what the UN calls ethnic cleansing, and we f suddenly think that, that this is the time to make a difference. Well, uh, we're a little too late here. Uh, the best we're going to be able to do is try to shine a light on this and try to help those who flee across the river into Bangladesh. And so I think a lot of the pressure has been on Aung San Suu Kyi, like you said, to say something about it. Considering the political trends then in, in Myanmar, is that just political suicide for her or is she, you know, more of a trying to be canny and trying to hold on to her power? I think there's a combination of things going on here. It is fair to say that Aung San Suu Kyi, um, you know, she was lionized and became a democracy icon while in prison, and it's easy to be a democracy icon when you don't have to govern. She's now a canny politician and has to be answerable to voters who are rapidly anti-Muslim in general and rapidly anti-Rohingya in particular. Uh, and she is taking that into consideration. It's also probably true that this isn't her issue. Um, she has never spoken out about the Rohingya. Uh, she, I, you know, is often criticized by other ethnic minorities in the country as governing for the Burma majority and not taking into account their concerns. So this is not just a Rohingya issue. I mean, she she certainly sees herself as a leader of Myanmar, but she's a leader of Burmans first, not all of the peoples of Myanmar. Um, but, you know, 
it that none of this means that that she should get a pass. Yeah, governing's hard, and yeah, maybe uh, she wouldn't be able to change hearts and minds overnight. But you know, if there was one person, one figure in Myanmar who had the moral power, the gravitas to speak up on this uh, and have an effect, it was Aung San Suu Kyi. Unfortunately, we'll never know if she could have done that because it probably is too late now in late 2017. But she had opportunity after opportunity to speak up before this became full-blown ethnic cleansing over the last five years. And at every turn, she refused to say a word. And I refuse to believe that a woman who is seen in almost messianic terms by many voters in Myanmar couldn't have said something over the last five years. You know, if she was a normal politician, you maybe would understand this. You know, she knows her base. She knows where her support is. She knows where not to step out of bounds. But like you said, this is a messianic type figure. This is, I mean, it almost makes me think, and that's a crazy comparison, but you think of Trump supporters or Trump can do, do whatever he wants because there's going to be 30% of people who will support him regardless. And so anyway, she's this, she's this messianic figure and it, it, it seems to me kind of an abdication of moral responsibility to not speak up and not to say anything. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, talking about Aung San Suu Kyi on this issue is difficult because it's it's difficult to separate the person from the icon. Um, she is not just a messianic figure in the eyes of many Burmese. Uh, I think she is a messianic figure in her own eyes, and, and that's part of the problem. Um, at the very least... Aung San Suu Kyi behaves as if she sees herself as the only hope for her people, uh, as if she's read too many of her own press releases. Uh, and that's not to take away from her accomplishments or her sacrifices, uh, but she does think that you know all of Myanmar's hopes for, for democracy rest on her shoulders, and therefore, if the Rohingya issue is a potential landmine, then she has to avoid it, uh, no matter the cost, that, you know, uh, the suffering of, of the Rohingya is uh, perhaps a necessary price to pay to keep the military on board with this democratization, and that, you know, it would be a greater tragedy for her to sacrifice her own ability to keep the military on board than it would be to speak up for these people. Um, but, you know, this is all highly speculative. Uh, unfortunately, Suchi has said really nothing, nothing personally, good or bad, on this issue since she was released from house arrest five years ago, six years ago. Um, her government ministers are actively abetting violence, and I think we should be honest there. The government, the civilian government is not just a bystander here. It would be bad enough if they were just mutely watching, but they're not. Uh, they are actively engaged in the disinformation campaign. They are actively engaged in hiding what's happening, her own press people, her chief of staff, her national security advisor frequently go out and uh, deride evidence presented by the international community on this. Uh, they were actively involved in repressing political rights, freedom of movement. Uh, they are the ones who have decided that foreign NGOs can't go in and provide medical care or food. Uh, and they're the ones rebuking international efforts to intervene and, and do good. So, yeah, they might not be able to tell the military to stop burning homes. Uh, that doesn't mean they have to be covering for them, and they are. That's the scary thing is we're talking about how, you know, 
this is a crisis and how, how terrible it is, but we don't quite even know yet the scale of it. No, I mean the, all of the evidence that comes out is either from first-hand accounts of refugees who have fled the border, and you have to imagine that this is a small percent compared to those who have been stuck inside the country, and satellite analysis or leaked video from cell phones that are taken by Rohingya on the ground. Um, you know, Amnesty International in particular has done a good job of trying to piece together from satellite analysis and on-the-ground video and photo the scale of destruction of Rohingya villages, but even there we, we don't have a lot. The only good first-hand evidence by a foreign journalist um, that I've seen of late is a BBC piece early this week in which the, the Myanmar government organized a very closely monitored uh, foreign journalist trip to Mongdal, which is one of the, the three townships at the heart of this uh, crackdown. And uh, they got lucky. The, the journalists ran away from their handlers when they saw a village burning and caught up with a group of Rakhine civilians walking away with machetes, one of whom admitted that they had just torched the village in cooperation with uh, the police. But all along during the trip, the police had been insisting that it was Rohingya villagers torching their own homes. And this has always been the government's uh, uh, creed that this goes back to 2012, that all of the destruction, all of the atrocities are committed by Rohingya against their own villages in order to garner international support. Which right. is absurd. It is absurd. patently absurd. But it has been very hard to get definitive proof uh, until now on this. Um, and even now we have the government releasing what we now know are doctored photos of, uh, in one case, Hindu villagers dressed up like Rohingya, burning Rohingya uh, villages that the civilian government has released to international press. So again, to say that they're only bystanders here is false. They're actively engaged in gaslighting the international community on this. It's mindless. I guess speechless, really. Well, as usual... As uplifting as the CSS podcast usually is, um, it's something we really have to keep an eye on. I think it's organizations like us and, and obviously journalists on the ground and, or, and NGOs who are on the ground um, who have a big responsibility here to do more than we can do, which is to actually bring you know first-hand accounts and let let people know what's going on there. Yeah. And look, there's, I know we're, we're running very long and you have to chop all this up, but there's one thing that we really should um, at least mention – and that is that the the Burmese military, the Myanmar government's line now is that all this is caused by terrorists among the Rohingya, which of course they'll call Bengali, represented by the this new organization, the ARSA, which nobody knew about until the end of last year, uh, the Arakan Rohingya Rohingya Salvation Army, which we do know has some international links, um, though they've publicly disavowed any links to IS or Al-Qaeda uh, or Jemaah or any others. Um, but, uh, I mean, yes, this group exists. Yes, there is now extremist violence in Rakhine State. As far as we can tell, they're not interested in being part of any international jihadi movement. They are only interested in greater autonomy at home. Um, but the fact is, this is a self-inflicted wound. Uh, the international community and foreign analysts and even some within Myanmar have been warning since at least 2012 that the Burmese government's crackdown on the rights of Rohingya after the communal violence in 2012 was going to lead to the rise of the very terrorist organizations that they were pretending existed at the time. Uh, and now here we are. 
And, you know, I remember Soren Pitswan, who at the time was the ASEAN Secretary General, warned that this was an issue that all of ASEAN had to take up because if the Myanmar government continued its crackdown on the Rohingya, they were going to create a extremist threat within uh, Myanmar that would then threaten the entire region. Uh, and that's exactly what they've done. They've created their own boogeyman. Um, finally, back to the, the UN, the UN General Assembly is meeting next week. Um, we talked about, you know, one of the best things that can be done is to shine a light. What are you expecting then to see come out of that from the international community? Well, Aung San Suu Kyi was supposed to attend the UN General Assembly. She is now not going. Um, officially, she's not going to take care of things at home. Really, we know she's not going because she doesn't want to be harangued by the entire international community, which is what's going to happen. Um, the only country that has, to my knowledge, publicly supported the, the Burmese government here is China, which has issued a statement saying that this is an internal affair. Everybody else pretty universally is condemning what's happening um, and condemning Suu Kyi and her government in particular. India has been a little wishy-washy. Uh, the prime minister was just there and, and hadn't really spoken up. Um, but they themselves are dealing with uh, Rohingya refugees, uh, so certainly it's a concern for Delhi. I mean, they're going to get it from all sides, um, and the the Burmese officials there are going to do what they have continued to do on the Rohingya issue. They're going to stonewall. Um, they're going to ignore all evidence. They're going to say that nothing is happening on the ground, that somehow this is all a fairy tale being created by uh, Rohingya extremists and uh, the foreign NGOs that back them. Uh, and yet they're going to also continue to refuse access to UN investigators and other foreign intermediaries who want to go in and look. And, you know, uh, nothing says we have nothing to hide, like not letting anybody look. <laughs> um, if there's one last opportunity for Suu Kyi to do some good here, it's going to come in a televised address that she's announced she's making uh, to the nation on the 19th. Uh, we should temper our hopes, but maybe she'll come out and surprise us. I, I, I don't expect she will at this point. She's already uh, decided where she stands here, but it is the last best hope for her to try to turn the ship here. Okay, we'll keep our eyes peeled for September 19th. Um, Greg Poling. Thanks so much for joining me again. Thanks for having me. And that was Greg Poling bringing us to the end of our show. If you're looking for more on next week's UN General Assembly, we did a press conference on it today, and you can find the transcript to the whole discussion on CSIS.org. We'll of course be back again next week, so in the meantime, if you have any feedback on the show or any suggestions for what we should cover next, please drop me a line. I'm at cquinn at CSIS.org, or you can find me on Twitter. As always, thanks for listening.